Father, we love you because you have loved us incomparably, unfathomably, in the eternal decree of your own will before time began. You planned all of these things. You will see them through. You planned and foreknew that Jesus Christ would come to pay the penalty for our sins and rise again from the dead in power and, re- and return to be seated at the right hand of majesty on high. You knew every single person, including me, God, whom you were going to draw to yourself, those whom you are still drawing to yourself through faith in Jesus Christ. And even as we talk about him, the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, again this morning, we thank you that you give your Holy Spirit to indwell us as believers. May we continue to yield to his work in us as we seek to submit to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine what it must have been like to be a Jew leading up to the days before Christ's coming. There had come a deafening silence of the Holy Spirit prophesying in Israel for some 400 years. No prophets since the time of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. But of course, in the beginning of the time frame of the New Testament narrative, It's no longer the case with the arrival of the unique prophet John the Baptist who wears animal fur and eats locusts and honey and proclaims the time of the Messiah has come. Repent. He's near. And then there is Jesus Christ himself who was indeed a prophet sent from God, but more than a prophet, the very Son of God, the divine Lord. Fast forward to where we are in early Acts, and the new covenant followers of Jesus have received the Holy Spirit in power, which brings about the situation for our our text that we look at today. And not only that, but Peter and the apostles, by the power of the Spirit, are set up to interpret the Scriptures They have come to understand the law and the Psalms and the prophets in light of what has happened through Christ and in light of what is happening to them right now at this moment. And they do so before the eyes of those in Jerusalem. Remember, the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and all the disciples, Acts 2-4, it says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And in verse 6, And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one of them was hearing them, these Galileans, speak in their own language. Verses 12 and 13, And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mockingly said, They are filled with new wine. And that brings us to our text for today, beginning in verse 14, we'll read through verse 21. But Peter, 
standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Peter will continue preaching, but over the next two or three weeks, we'll have to try to to unpack this whole sermon from Peter. So we'll stop at verse 21 for now, where he finishes quoting Joel, and we're going to try to understand in the context of the sermon, why does Peter quote Joel? Well, first then, what's the backdrop for the sermon? I told you last week, Luke always puts things in a context. So what is the setting for Peter's sermon, verses 14 to 16? Well, although it is Peter who preaches... We see that there is unity and solidarity among the twelve. Standing with the eleven, he addressed them, all this crowd that has gathered. And Peter's clearly speaking to Jews and proselytes to Judaism, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. And you should hear already a connection that Jesus had said to them in Acts 1.8, this is where the spread of the gospel must begin, in Jerusalem. And in Judea. Listen carefully, Peter says, to what I have to say. Listening is not as passive as one might think. You're doing the talking, all I'm doing is the listening. Listening is actively paying attention and engaging the mind in what is being preached. Listen to what I have to say. Because of what you are hearing, These Galileans speaking, declaring the mighty works of God in the various native tongues where where you're from. Here's why you need to listen, because that cannot be explained away by some lame reasoning that we are all drunk at 9 a.m. The third hour in Jewish fashion would be 9 a.m. in our time, because they would start with zero at 6 a.m. So the third hour is 9 a.m. It's about 6 a.m., zero, 6 a.m.-ish sunrise, so now it would be around 9 a.m. Peter begins in verse 16 then with his sermon, the first Christian sermon I told you last week. Because a Christian sermon is centered on Christ. He begins quoting the prophet Joel to give a better reason for what they are seeing and hearing. And we'll get to it in verse 33, how he explains that. But first, how does Peter use the Joel text? My second question for you is, what are the two movements in this quotation in verses 17 to 21? Let's look first at how Peter quotes and interprets Joel 2, 28 to 32 under the divine guidance of the Holy Spirit. 
The reason I say Peter interprets it as well is because he's not only speaking from memory and not reading, but that there are minor variations in the quotation. And we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. That means every part of it in the original languages of the original writings is breathed out by the Holy Spirit and is God's truth. So as Jesus himself says of prophecy and the law in particular, not even a jot or tittle, or your your translation might, might say, not an iota or a dot will pass away before all is accomplished, Matthew 5, 17 and 18. So if there is any minor variation here in Peter's quote, we must see this as the Holy Spirit's guidance upon Peter to interpret the text. The only truly noteworthy example of this comes very near the beginning, the very first words of his quotation, but it is significant to our understanding of Peter's quoting Joel, where Joel says, it shall come to pass afterward, if you open your Bible to Joel 2 and look at verse 28, you will see the the comparison there. He says, it shall come to pass afterward. Peter quotes and interprets this afterward as the last days. When we talk about the last days, we almost always think of eschatology, and the Jews naturally did the same. Of things yet future, in the very final years of this earth before Christ returns. But here and elsewhere in the New Testament, the eschatological last days have already begun. We're living in the last days. Well, that doesn't mean that there are no more prophecies that that have yet to be fulfilled, which we even see as Peter continues the quote in Joel. The point is that Jesus has inaugurated the beginning of the last days. Here are other New Testament passages with the same concept. Listen to Peter himself say in a letter that he wrote, 1 Peter 1.20, He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Peter's close friend and fellow apostle John will also say in 1 John 2.18, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Paul, the apostle, says in his letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 10, verse 11, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. On whom has the end of the ages come? The people Paul is talking to. Even the Lord's brother James, in his writing, speaks of the last days. That comes in James 5, verse 3. But here's my favorite This last one is from the author of the letter to the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He's writing to the Jews. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed to be the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. In these last days, he has spoken to us. By his son. The last days were inaugurated by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So to be clear, these last days doesn't mean in recent past. It doesn't mean that in Scripture, and the Jews wouldn't have thought it meant that. No, just as the context of of Joel chapter 2 shows, it refers to an eschatological promise, and here, the fulfillment of it. The last days have begun, and we are living in them. Now, the apostles have no way of knowing just how long the last days will last, because there will come an end to the last days. Remember that response to the question from the disciples that Jesus gave of when would the kingdom be culminated? When will the kingdom be culminated? Look back at Acts chapter 1 and verse 7. It says, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. When will the very last days of the last days be, Jesus? It's not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses until then. But you might ask, how can 2,000 years passing be the last days? Well, Peter himself answers that question later in his life, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. See, Peter says this in the context of some scoffers saying to believers, see, where's the Lord's coming? You guys keep talking about Jesus returning. Where is he? It hasn't happened. And it might cause believers to, to themselves feel nervous. Do they have a point here? And Peter answers, the day of the Lord is surely coming, and it will come like a thief. Now, we, in our context of Joel, still have to talk about the day of the Lord, and we're coming to that. But Peter says, but don't try to count the time and describe it as slowness in normal human terms. God's slowness, Peter says in that context, is him being patient until everyone whom he is drawing to himself comes. It is the last days, and the day of the Lord is coming. But with the Lord, a thousand years is as a day, and a day as a thousand years. So it's been two days. (laughs) Of course, that's not really the point. So in the last days, I will pour out my spirit, God is speaking, on all flesh, back in our quotation of Joel. By all flesh or all people, Peter clearly doesn't mean every single person. The text means all different kinds of people, as the continued explanation shows. Just keep reading verses uh, 17 and 18. I will pour out My spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. It's exactly the same as Joel 2, 28 and 29. Based on all that we hear in the apostolic era of the New Testament, this is in fact fulfilled in the days of the early church. The daughters of Philip, for example, Prophesied, Acts 21, verses 8 and 9. In Acts, we will also see that Stephen, in the midst of his martyrdom, has a vision of Christ in heaven. Acts chapter 7 and verse 56. 
Saul's conversion occurs with a, a vision of or an encounter with the risen Christ on the Damascus Road. We see it in Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26 when Paul talks about it. Ananias then has a vision from God that he should go to Saul, Acts 9, verse 12. Peter has a dreamlike vision in Acts 10 that he must not call unclean what the Lord has made clean, which turns out to mean that God is saving people from him, for himself from among the Gentiles as well as the Jews. In this case, namely the centurion Cornelius and his household. We could seek to find more examples in Acts, but you get the point, I think. The force of the quotation is that the Holy Spirit will come upon all who are in Christ. And social status doesn't matter. Gender doesn't matter. Not even ethnicity prevents God from doing so. And Peter himself, we just saw in Acts 10, will learn the degree to which he currently speaks better than he even has full understanding of. All flesh. Gentiles too, Peter. Don't call unclean what I am making clean. Now, although the last days have begun, the quotation in Joel transitions to the end of the last days. So this is the part where I'm telling you there's a different movement. If you look in your Bible at Joel 2, verses 28 to 32, you'll also see a pretty clear division at verse 30. There's a transition here in time frame. The reason we know that is because back in Acts, the end of verse 20 shows that this part is in connection to just before the day of the Lord comes. It sounds exactly like Revelation 6.12's description of some of the future calamities. Revelation 6.12, when he, the Lord Jesus, opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. These things occur yet future, apparently more closely associated with the time just before the great and magnificent day, the day of the Lord. We have to ask ourselves too then, what is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord as it is used this way refers to God's intervention in the future to bring to conclusion a severe judgment for sin upon the earth. The day of the Lord refers to God's intervention in the future to bring to conclusion his judgment for sin upon the earth. It is undoubtedly in the New Testament's interpretation a day or a time period when Christ comes again to judge in a final sense. We can feel confident that Peter is using it this way. This is why I'll tell you that I'm confident Peter uses it this way. As a warning to his hearers that such a day may be very near and they need to prepare because of the way it's used in Joel, and that's who Peter is is quoting, listen to Joel 1.15. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Does that sound like judgment? Joel 2.1. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Joel 3, verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Again, Peter includes the full prophecy then 
as a warning to the Jews that he's speaking to. The last days have already begun, and while not all has yet been fulfilled, the day of the Lord's judgment cannot be far behind. Now, certainly, we've already begun to see how Peter uses Joel in his message, but let's try to be as clear as we can on why Peter uses the text from Joel in this context of his sermon. We'll look at verses 22 and following just a little bit to see how they lead up to verse 33 as an explanation of the Spirit at work in these disciples. So fulfillment of Joel's prophecy has begun. The outpouring of the Spirit in the last days signaled the nearness of the day of the Lord when judgment would come. What at first seems crazy to us is that Peter doesn't immediately, in verse 22, explain why he quotes the passage from Joel. I told you, he doesn't do that all the way until verse 33 in your Bibles. But the reason for that should be abundantly clear. Peter wants to make no mistake that the coming of the Spirit like this is in fact from the Lord Jesus. This wouldn't be happening if it were not for the Lord Jesus. And that God made it possible by what Jesus accomplished. Listen with me now to Acts 22 to 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Nobody around there is denying that that's accurate. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it, by death. We'll study this again, this text again next week to see. But for now, let's look at the main point of the quote that begins in verse 25. This is now quoting a psalm of David. Verse 27 will say, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. David says this about, Peter explains David says this about the Messiah and not about himself. Verse, look at verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. We believe that if Peter had been teaching near the Temple Mount, that tomb of David, at least where they traditionally marked the tomb of David, would have been really nearby. He might have been able to say, you know, like 100 yards that way. <laughs> the tomb of David is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, David, and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he... Christ was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of all that we and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God is this Jesus, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he who received the promise of the Holy Spirit and now has done what you see. Who's he talking about? Give me the Sunday school answer. Jesus, <laughs> the Lord Jesus, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. 
So what you see in here is a result of the Spirit, which is a result of the Lord sending him. He has poured out, which is a result of God accomplishing his will by his own grace and mercy through Jesus. Peter wants there to be no mistake that what you're seeing about the Spirit, let me explain, is a fulfillment of this prophecy from Joel, but not without Jesus. Jesus is what makes this possible. Peter has also said in there that God's plan and grace does not negate your guilt. Verse 23, you crucified and killed. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The New Testament makes clear that none of us is righteous, not a single one, Paul says to the, in his letter to the Romans. Our sin put Jesus on the cross. God in his sovereignty still holds us accountable for our sin and for our response to his offer of mercy and grace in Jesus. Before we can leave the text in Joel 2, Peter alludes again to the final part of that text, a part he didn't quote in his first uh, quotation. When Peter begins explaining how God can save them through Jesus, if they repent for forgiveness, being baptized in the Holy Spirit, he'll tell them in verse 39, and this is a quotation from that same section of Joel, or an allusion at the very least, Peter says to them, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, this is the part from Joel, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And this verse, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself, leads me to our concluding applications for today. There is a negative warning in our passage, but in the context of a positive promise. What is the warning to you? If the day of the Lord was near for them, how much nearer must it be today? Do not delay in responding to Jesus. The good news for those who accept is also the bad news for those who reject. Do not remain under God's wrath. Do not reject. Do not delay Instead, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. To those who reject Jesus, a sermon like this from Peter, a sermon declared like this this morning here at Branson Bible Church, is further condemnation if you reject Jesus. But to those who are being saved, you don't need to wonder if God can save a wretch like you or me. God is calling you to himself. And the power of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is effective to save you. Christ's work is sufficient for you. And that is the promise. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And here's a final application for you who are saved sinners, the people of God. We're living in the last days. But because that is true, what's next for you? The New Testament tells you all over the place 
Hey, nobody said following Jesus was going to be easy. (laughs) In fact, the very definition of coming to Christ is to come to an end of yourself. I have nothing, Lord, except my sin. But you have given Jesus. Rescue me. And then Jesus tells you, to be like me, you will take up your cross. Sacrifice daily for the good of others to the glory of God. So that some other people might come to know me. I am drawing my people, more people to myself. I'm going to let you be a part of that. But I'm not going to pretend that if they mistreated me, they won't mistreat you. Remember? They hated me first. They're not doing this to you. They're doing this to me. Get ready. Prepare for suffering. Prepare for persecution. Prepare for difficulty. But I am giving you my spirit. The very presence of God with and in his people. I'll tell you, when I'm trusting in my own strength, this endurance race that is uphill and with many hurdles and many arrows feels difficult and impossible. But when I stop relying on the flesh and trust in the spirit, I stop focusing on my circumstances and thinking about me. (laughs) And I remember the promise that the spirit of God has sealed me to the day of redemption. I remember that he is empowering his people, not just me, but the others whom he has called to himself. So I can give them the same kind of grace that I want them to give to me. We can strive side by side. We can love people who are far off just as we ourselves were. Because the endurance race has a finish line. And that finish line is coming to you. You feel like you're going to it, but he is coming to you. What's next? To be away from the body if you die. To be away from the body is to be present with the Lord. Death, where's your victory now? Death, where's your sting? 1 Corinthians 15. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And you were under those, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are in Christ now and forever, period, full stop. You don't need to fear the day of the Lord Because to us, it means rescue rather than judgment. Think about this. Even for those who are saved during the tribulation, they can rest in the words of Jesus Christ to his disciples about being in those final days of calamity. This comes in Luke 21, verses 27 and 28. If you're living in that time period where the moon turns to blood... Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. What did he say in Acts? Just as you saw him leave, surely he's coming again. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Oh, how I love those final words, and I hope you do too. We should take them as a promise to strengthen us all as believers. 
Straighten up and raise your heads, people of God, because your redemption is drawing near. Let's pray. Lord God of the universe, the only true God, the triune God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Spirit, even as your word says, you have been our dwelling place for your people throughout all generations. Father, we are blessed to live in the generation that is post-cross, post-resurrection, where our mediator, Jesus Christ, is seated at the right hand of majesty on high. And he not only gives us the gift of faith, but the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit to seal us, to strengthen us, to guide us, to carry us forward in this endurance race. We don't have to be beaten. We may be knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Because you do as you have promised. And you are coming again soon. Lord, help us to live as Peter instructed. In light of those days, he says in his letters that we ought to live holy set apart to you. May people see us and see a people who are in struggle but rejoicing. People who are weak but made strong in Jesus Christ. We thank you and we give you all the glory for it. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.